how do you teach a machine something that is too difficult to define explicitly how can we get the machine to learn from reinforcement from hey that's bad don't do that hey that's good do more of that it's kind of how how the brain sort of works right well this is a field in ai called reinforcement learning and i sit down with dr jacomo spigler to speak more about it he is a professor in the department of cognitive science and ai he teaches the calculus course that's where i first met him but he also does a lot of work in reinforcement learning and robotics and yeah it's an awesome conversation i hope you learn something and yeah please enjoy What's up, man? Yeah, all good. Just uh, tired. This semester is actually really, really busy. Probably the busiest I had uh, at Tilburg University so far. Like uh, in a good way, but because of like the like like the the, the work with the thesis stuff, or like what's the what's uh, the what's the yeah, a bit everything. So we have uh, of course the second semester is busier because we have more uh, classes to teach. They just bring it a bit closer yeah. to your face. Yeah. So it's uh, busy because there are more uh, classes, but also uh, we have so many projects starting. We have uh, the new robotics lab, the AIR lab, uh, or AI for robotics, that is also starting this semester. Well, at the end of this semester. You want to say something about that real quick? Yeah, so uh, it's going to be uh, me and Murata, we manage the lab, and um, the lab uh, is going to be the first uh, uh, actual robotics lab at Tibur University. So we are planning a lot of projects already. We are going to get a PhD student with the sta uh, NWS starting grant um, from the government. And uh, uh, it just takes time to set it up because we still don't have an actual room, but we're going to have it in a couple of months. So there are going to be a lot of exciting demos and a lot of exciting uh, research being uh, being done there. It's going to be on campus or in like mind labs? It's going to be in mind labs. Nice, nice, nice. All right. So, well, I, th I sort of primed you for what I wanted to talk to you about. But uh, generally, let's focus on some reinforcement learning yep. stuff. Okay. So the boys and I, we did, so, so we started like journal club. And we st so we, every every month we sit down and talk about some paper that that that, that we want to discuss. And the last one we did was uh, Andres. He he says he's suggested that we do the deep reinforcement learning, human level control through deep reinforcement learning yep. that was released by uh, those ho the the the, the, the oh, was it, was it OpenAI? No, uh, no, I think DeepMind. DeepMind, DeepMind, right? Okay. Where do you want to start, man? You can take this where you want to go. Like, how do you want to, like, if, if you were going to talk to a random person about this, <laughs> how would you start? Yeah, I don't know if you have a question, because I have a, uh, uh, reinforcement learning is a massive field. Huh? So first, uh, for uh, the uh, for the viewers, uh, a definition can be that reinforcement learning is uh, a branch of machine learning that deals with uh, learning behavior. So that's important, because if you want to learn a behavior, like uh, a self-driving car, you could do it uh, theoretically with supervised learning. You just collect a lot of data, uh, you steer the car, you collect the, what is the action that the human did when driving a car, depending on the cameras, you know, the, what, the cam what the car is seeing. Um, and then you can uh, do a, a train supervised learning model on that data. <laughs> it turns out that this does not work because the, there is not so much more variety in the experiences that can be collected. So do we never, you know, if you're driving a car, do we never ever be two identical frames from a camera when driving a car? So neural networks do generalize well, but they, in this case, they really risk overfitting and then uh, picking the wrong action. So if you get up on a new road that was never seen before uh, and you train the, the network with supervised learning, it is very likely that uh, the car will just pick some random actions and then you go off road. So if you want to learn a behavior, there is a better technique, that is reinforcement learning. Reinforcement learning uh, works uh, in a way that is somehow similar to how uh, animals learn. And it is by learning by reinforcement. What we mean by that is that uh, when, uh, by evolution, our brain is designed to learn uh, new uh, tasks fast. And learning is done through some reward signal. A reward signal can be if an animal finds food in the wild, then it's happy. Or if you get a predator, it's really scared, and I need to remember not to go near, you know, a lion's nest, you know, <laughs> any, anymore. A lion's nest? I don't think. Yeah, lions I don't know. It's like I mean, uh, like a den, like <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the area uh, where that comes. Um, so yeah. Um, so the idea is that uh, an agent can 
do different actions and and then observe whether the action has a positive or negative outcome and then use that to understand uh, or try to understand which of the many actions the agent did so far contributed to the positive or negative uh, outcome that was observed and reinforcement learning deals with finding a way to attribute to assign uh, the score positive or negative to the specific action we're done to understand what which action contributed to the out, good or bad outcome and then either try to repeat the good action or try to avoid the, the bad action and it turns out that this very general approach there is a, a an hypothesis that is very widely shared in the field not by everybody but I would say by the majority and that there is a paper on a friend of mine about it and it's called the reward hypothesis and that hypothesis says that uh, any behavior we might care about you know in our world or you know that a robot could do a car can do a computer can do uh, um, can be um, uh, expressed as a reward function so that uh, there exists a reward function such that if you train an agent using that reward function, that is how, when to give and how much reward to give or punishment to give, uh, then uh, the agent will learn to solve the task uh, we care about. And if that is true, which I think it is uh, probably true, um, then it means that uh, we can engineer reward functions and then we, have a we can have agents learn anything we care about. Okay. So this is one thing that came to, came to mind when you mentioned uh, figuring out what to what to learn. So basically, the question is, how do we how do we teach the agent what to learn, right? And the space of let's say, for example, driving a car is like so vast, and that's how they. So Tesla the, is a purely reinforcement learning stuff. No, I don't think they use reinforcement learning at all. I think they uh, or they use it in some parts, but I think it's mostly deep learning for you know vision to detect obstacle and uh, and the likes. Uh, and then I think they have a uh, kind of handcrafted policies to control the car. Oh wow, um, I didn't know that. I, I, don't um, I think that they definitely try different approaches, and you know it's all secretive. But all the self-driving car companies, I think that. Um, um, uh, yeah, they probably do some uh, some models for driving. Uh, in practice, it's not that difficult. The problem is that there is so much variability in the uh, you know conditions you can encounter. But if you can steer a car and keep it like you know within lane, uh, you have a GPS and uh, you, you know you know what is which roads to take. So you have to recognize which road is which. But uh, it's something that you can uh, kind of engineer by hand if you had a reliable perceptual system. So if you're doing so. In terms of uh, people doing reinforcement learning, it's a lot of uh, companies. Uh, sorry, like is it so? How do we go from academia reinforcement learning stuff? Is there some application right now being using um, Well, one very famous one is ChatGPT. ChatGPT is oh, actually right. fine-tuned using reinforcement learning, so that is definitely starting to get used more and more. Um, for many applications, uh, some companies are trying to do it, but it's still uh, not mature enough as a field. So I don't think there are many actual applications that use it. But again, this became more popular. So Dota 2, the uh, like OpenAI's Dota thing, was that? Yeah, yeah, but that's like uh, not used in practice, right? It's only yeah, yeah, for yeah, research just, and just, for yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, special competitions. Uh, but also uh, AlphaGo uh, to win, you know, that won against the, the world champion at Go. Uh, there definitely are a lot of uh, state-of-the-art superhuman performance agents, but for actual day-to-day -day application, it's still limited. But it will be get there. There are only some problems, so um, that will be fixed. One is that it is much more compute intensive than uh, uh, standard deep learning, so you need more powerful supercomputer. Then the field is not mature enough yet, so we did not get uh, a chaos or TensorFlow moment yet with reinforcement learning. The software infrastructure is uh, fragmented in a lot of different libraries. They are kind of converged to some kind of unified standard, uh, but they are still kind of different. So that uh, uh, makes it dif more difficult, you know, to get started in the field. Then the field per se has more complexity than uh, normal machine learning. In normal machine learning, you have a data set, uh, and you can, uh, you know, if you change the model, you still use the same data set with the same interface. But in reinforcement learning, an agent has to interact with the environment. So you have to make code because you don't have a data set. The data set is collected through the interaction between your computer and the environment. So um, you need to write code that supports that interaction. So even a lot of the, uh, if I understand correct, if I understand what I've read, very little bit, but like even the you know the fancy um, Boston Boston dynamic stuff. That's more like that's absolutely in zero reinforcement learning. Yeah, control theory. Yeah, yeah. that's a, a typical robotics company with typical robotics method. They develop at a very impressive level of performance, uh, but it's still kind of old school robotics uh, uh, that uh, I personally don't think uh, will have a place in the future. 
because it, it is all things and nice. But you know, the demos you see of Boston Dynamics uh, are only the good the good ones. There are videos from Boston Dynamics in which you actually see a realistic experiment, and you see that 90% of the time, uh, the robot that tries to do all this fancy movement around the, the obstacle course uh, just uh, misses step and fall. And of course, you don't see those in the in the in the good uh, videos. <clears throat> so the thing is, with um, this is more connected not only to reinforcement learning, but in general to what is called end-to-end -end robot learning. This I first heard about it uh, from uh, uh, colleagues at DeepMind. Um, I think uh, in 2019, 2020. So it was a, a bit ago. Um, so this is not something new that I'm coming up with, but um, it's well known. But still, uh, um, not uh, that developed. So first, what do you mean by end-to-end -end robot learning? Uh, uh, we need to think of how robotics work nowadays. In traditional robotics, uh, you make a, you create a system by handcrafting the system, kind of like a machine learning versus deep learning. And when you handcraft the system, you might want to, example, to detect uh, a, a person, uh, a, like a face, and to detect the face expression uh, from where the person is smiling. And that means that you have to you usually make a module that uses computer vision or you know, deep learning nowadays to detect faces. Then you crop the face out of the image and you run another neural network to detect the face expression. Now imagine if you change the light intensity in the you know, in the room. If one of these two modules, like the face recognition um, module, uh, does not uh, detect the face anymore because the light uh, condition changes, then uh, your whole robot will stop working because it does not detect any face, even if you're literally in front of the robot. So that's not very good. And you know, it's, it can break in very, very easily. If you make a, a robot that does a very complex behavior, you start getting many, many, many of these modules. And the more of these modules you have, the more it, it is likely that uh, the system will break down because if a single module breaks, then the whole system breaks because it is lacking uh, impo crucial information. Now, in end-to-end -end learning, instead, uh, we use a single neural network, uh, or no, a single model in general, neural network, that goes from uh, raw sensor data, for example, cameras or motor sensors, uh, and produces motor actions as output. So we know human in the loop, uh, but they can be human in the loop, but not human designing the system uh, you know, with the module. The idea is that, uh, like with deep learning versus machine learning, if uh, uh, this network is learning to do a task and that requires detecting whether a person is smiling, it could learn to detect some features that are much more reliable across from lighting conditions uh, without needing to detect a face. So the system might, for example, detect that there is a person smiling without detecting a face in the image. But that could be enough for doing the task correctly and it could be more reliable because there will not be a single breaking point, but it will be like a full monolithic system. So the idea is to let the let the system learn the representation that yeah, you need. Yeah, exactly. Because when we uh, when we create our own representation, like um, with machine learning, we introduce our own assumptions. But our own human assumptions are usually wrong in this case. Because we think that in order to do the task, you have to detect that there is a face and that there is a smiling face. But maybe the, you know it turns out that the robot does not need to know all that information, or does not need to know the x y z coordinates in uh, centimeters, you know, of the face with respect to the camera to do the task. So sometimes, uh, you know, when you do um, robot grasping, you need to detect an object on a table, and you have to know the precise coordinates in millimeters of where the object is with respect to the robot, so that then you can control your robot arm to go reach the object and grasp it. But we humans don't know the coordinate with that level of precision. We know roughly where the object is, then we start moving the, uh, our hand uh, towards it. And when the hand is closer, we kind of do visual serving, so we know what is the relative distance of the hand and the object. We know which one is a bit closer because stereoscopic vision. We know whether the object is a bit to the left, a bit to the right, uh, and then we adjust our movement. We don't need the precise location. You know, speaking mm -hmm. of adjusting movements, yeah. one of the things that like blew my mind is... Um, so when you, when you're walking in the walking in the rain when you're walking in the that umbrella mm -hmm. our ability to just like to adjust the umbrella to the wind yep. that's nuts yeah, yeah. That's, that's insane I, I was like I, I was walking around and I was like what the hell I was like looking at I was reading and then I was like man the fact that I can do this is insane yeah, yeah. right yeah because like I don't like think about the differential equations you need to yeah, model yeah. that right it's it's yeah, yeah. So if you were to do it with robot in traditional robotics, you would actually have to do all this engineering you know, of the physics and the control and everything by hand. Um, with end-to-end -end learning, you just let the system learn only the thing it needs. 
Okay. The downside is that it could overfit to only certain conditions. So you, as usual with the machine learning, you need to have a, a very wide variety range of conditions to be able to make the model learn. So how do you well. generate those wide variety of conditions? Yeah, so in robotics, uh, with reinforcement learning and end-to-end -end learning robotics, we usually use simulators because uh, this process can require, may sometimes require a lot of data and a lot of uh, time to learn in terms of interaction between the robot and the world, not in training time because you can use a supercomputer and that can be arbitrarily fast. Um, but in terms of data collected of the interaction between the robot and environment, it needs a lot of data. Um, uh, so in order to do that, uh, we uh, the only way to do is simulators. At the beginning of the field, uh, I think 2017, 2016, um, Google uh, tried to build a robot farm with uh, like, I think uh, 20, 50 something robot arms, actually pretty expensive one. They spent like a few million dollars on that project. Um, so they, they basically put these robots one next to each other and they made them do the same task in parallel. And it is that uh, if you have 50 robots doing the same task in parallel, you take one fifth, one fiftieth of the time of interaction with the environment to collect the same amount of data. And it still takes a long time, but to learn, you can learn some simple tasks within one or two hours of interaction environment multiplied by, by this robot. But that is unlikely to scale because that's a very simple setup. Uh, some tasks, uh, they are not easily repeated like that. Uh, some tasks uh, cannot uh, be done like that. In some cases, you might have robots that are much more expensive, so it's not always possible. I mean, and even if you can do it, uh, it's still really, really insanely expensive. We've, we've had the benefit of billions of years of evolution. Right? Indeed. So we don't have to learn everything from scratch. Yeah. So, lo so yeah. If, you, if you're trying to reinforcement learning uh, and teach a robot how to play Go. But that's, uh, I don't think it's a major problem because um, it just ch it requires a change in attitude. What they mean is um, we are witnessing uh, an era of large models, like a large language model, for example, but not only them. Uh, and they are called uh, in the field foundation models. So they work as follows. Uh, these models are actually not even um, trained for meta-learning you know, to learn faster uh, new tasks. They actually do zero-shot adaptation. So without new data, they can adapt to new tasks. And that's because they are very big model. They have a lot of uh, acquired knowledge. And it turns out that you know, with GPT, if you use a different prompt, uh, you can actually specify a different task. And that it does not require retraining. But ideally, you might think that the model could be um, trained to be fast, uh, well, rapidly adaptable, adaptable for example, using meta-learning, and then you can just do fine-tuning. So the idea is that if you have this big model, you don't need to train it on your own desktop. You can train it to supercomputer, even spend like $1 million by a big company to do it. But once you have it, you have to train it only once. You don't have to train it again. If you want to adapt it to your own task, you add your data and you fine-tune it, and that you can do on your desktop because that is much faster and requires much less data. So in that case, uh, what uh, the supercomputer is doing with you know, these few million euros is what evolution did for us you know, in a, in a kind of uh, light parallel. And then uh, when you're fine-tuning the model, you're just doing like some simple, simpler learning. So that is not a big problem. It is a big problem because you still need these big resources to do it, but there are a lot of players doing it and uh, universities have access to supercomputers. So we can also, uh, not at the scale of uh, OpenAI, but we can definitely do experiments uh, in that direction. So uh, like, I feel like reinforcement learning for robotics is a, it's like a, it's like, it's like a magnitude level dif difficulty. In terms yeah, of but it will become easier. So it's just that the, it requires a lot of software infrastructure to set up a kind of a sort of, um, uh, make it simpler for people to, to use. And also the other thing that robots are expensive and every robot is different. So uh, you have to customize your code for every robot. So we need a bit more standard standards in the field, but, um, the more people, Working, uh, start working this on these topics, uh, especially if they open source the code or they write software libraries to make it easier for other people to use it, the more it will become use easier to, to try out these things on robo no, natural robots. And then the more people will be able to enter the field and then you get even more uh, productivity. It just takes a while, but we are trying to make it uh, faster. So we've been trying, I mean, we've been first nothing, we've been, has been, you know, evolving for a while now, right? Like the, the field has been doing some stuff like uh i remember like some really old old attempts to to get hands to do certain things but it required so many training iterations and re repeating and like getting thing and but uh, the open ai has their own hand right they can do the whole yeah that's uh, like a three hundred thousand uh, dollar aid by shadow robotics that's crazy yeah. but um but now, for example, I think the change that was, I think, in 2018 or 2019 uh, with the OpenAI demo with the hand. <clears throat> and that required uh, 10 to 40,000 computer cores to train plus, you know, 60 GPUs or something. Uh, nowadays, 
you can reproduce uh, part of that experiment on your own desktop uh, because NVIDIA has released a, a physics simulator that runs fully on GPU. So you train both the simulator and your agent, everything runs on the GPU. And then you can get a, a massive throughput of, of data collection. So in a couple of hours on a decent GPU, you can get as much uh, um, uh, data that was collected by OpenAI with those tens, tens of thousands of computer cores. So now they, you can do it. It's actually a bit more cheated. There are some differences so that uh, the one the experiment you're running on your computer is not really compatible with the one by OpenAI. But if you were to do that, you will still get uh, a pretty decent throughput. So you can still get uh, some of the benefit. And that means that uh, it becomes easier for people to, to do this research. But so it's still difficult to use this software though. The future of uh, robotics, you would say, is reinforcement learning? Is that the... Is that the just well, in general, end-to-end -end robot learning. So reinforcement learning is one thing. Reinforcement learning has uh, some problems uh, aside from the compute timer. <coughs> a problem is that... Um, uh, it is difficult to specify a reward function for a task because you have a task in mind, uh, like turning on, uh, like making coffee. And you can specify it uh, with rewards. You can say, okay, I give a reward uh, of one if you actually make a coffee and zero if you don't. Okay, it will take forever before the robot by accident makes coffee and then gets a reward. So it will never observe any reward. So that's not a good reward. It's intuitive, it specifies the task, <clears throat> but it's not good for learning. That's what they call a sparse reward. Because for most interaction, the robot gets zero, uh, no, no rewards, so it does not know if it's doing well or bad. Now, then you can do, make it more dense. Let's say you make individual steps, like uh, turning the, machine, the coffee machine on is the first step you definitely need to do, or grabbing a cup. And for all of this, you just give a reward of one. Okay, the robot learns to turn on the coffee machine, then turns it off, then on again, off, on, off, on. Very simple, not making coffee, collecting infinite reward. So uh, these agents can, can learn to cheat very easily. And usually they will learn something that is not what you meant. So after training this agent, you see that it, it, is not, it does not work. You see what didn't go wrong, and you try to modify the reward function to, to solve the task more effectively. And it, takes, it can take a lot of time. And if one of these training settings takes uh, like one or two days to, to, to train and to test, uh, and that's still very fast for reinforcement learning standards, it will still take a long time to uh, do the fine tuning. So instead of that, we have different techniques. One that is very power, uh, powerful and uh, becoming popular, but still uh, not mature enough to work in, in practical context, is imitation learning. So imitation learning collects observation from humans. So for example, if we have uh, a robot arm making coffee, you could uh, uh, put the robot in impedance con uh, control and then literally grasp the robot arm and move it around to make it do the action to make coffee. And after doing a few repetitions, you collect this headset and use this to introduce some prior in the robot. So you kind of pre-train the robot to mimic those kind of trajectories that were shown by the by I the mean, user. I think some industrial robots do that, right? Uh, that, yes, but that's, you uh, know, without, without reinforcement learning, they're just memorizing the yeah, trajectory. Yeah, yeah. In reinforcement learning, you might want to have uh, a robot with a camera looking at what it's doing, so that if you move the coffee mug, you want the, the arm to move to the new, new correct location, right? Not to the same location as before. But So you want to show a lot of example, and you want the robot to generalize uh, so it can learn uh, what was intended. Another thing is... Uh, it can just be observing human or, or doing this kind of data and trying to infer what is the reward function that the human is using in that setup. So if the robot observes a, a human making coffee or, or a human moves the robot to make coffee, then the robot can assign, uh, can collect these rewards and then try to make a function, a reward function that if used for training would reproduce that type of trajectory of movement. And then it can use that for training. Uh, one last example is uh, that is also becoming popular now, and that's actually what was done with the ChatGPT, uh, but it's not the first time it was used. It's reinforcement learning from human feedback. That means that uh, uh, we uh, humans can look at the robot, so there is no reward function, and the robot is just learning. So uh, let's say that you take a reward function parameterized by neural network. At the beginning, it is random weights. So you give like an image as input, uh, and the reward function neural network will just predict a random number, right? Or zero, so nothing useful. And the robot starts learning with that reward function. Now, that reward function is meaningless, so the robot will just do random movement. That's fine. Then you get uh, some human participants, like a mechanical Turk, uh, that watch some uh, short videos of a couple of seconds of robots doing, in simulation, doing um, different uh, behaviors. So you just collect these snapshots of videos of the robot moving at random at different time, times during training. Then you give them to a person, and the person has to say which one of a pair of videos looks a bit closer to achieving the solution. So the robot is moving at random, but maybe in one video is moving at random closer to the coffee machine. Eh? So you think, yeah, that's a, a bit better because it is more likely to get to the, to the objective than the other one. And then um, you collect the data set of these preferences from the user, so which of the two options is better. And then you use them to train the reward function model 
so that basically um, you run uh, this neural network twice on the two videos, and each neural network will predict uh, they're the same weight, so the same neural network, but they predict a different a Bring different this thing score. Close to Close to your face a little bit. Yes, yeah, so uh, so, uh, there you go. Yeah. so uh, this um, uh, the neural net will be run twice on two videos and we uh, um, output uh, a certain score, like how good uh, that um, uh, that uh, video, no, that behavior was. And then the neural net uh, is trained to to match uh, the prediction of the user. So you want uh, the highest score to be assigned to the video that was the, of the best behavior, uh, slightly better behavior. After doing that, uh, you get a slightly better reward function that is keep, keep getting used to modify the, the, the robot behavior. And the robot learns to do something that matches a bit more the human preference. Then the more it gets close to the task, the human keep uh, updating its preferences. So the, the, the reward function uh, keep getting updated to, to basically learn what a human prefer. So if a, the neural network needs to replace the human. So if the human looks at these two videos, say which one of the two behaviors is better, we want the neural network to be able to do it by itself because then we can just run its supercomputer and do training. And to show that, the more you do it, after a while, this, this uh, reward function uh, learns the human preference very well and can predict uh, which behavior a human would prefer. And then you use that to train the agent. And uh, after using that, the agent does the task. So this is also very powerful. And again, it's, uh, it's what was done with ChatGPT. Uh, In ChatGPT, um, actions by the agent were uh, defined as uh, uh, ge sentences generated by ChatGPT uh, by or by GPT. And then users were shown uh, different generated text from the same prompt. So I think they were given the prompt and uh, like two alternatives of generated text. And users had to rank them. So let's say which one of these two generated text looks more natural, looks better, looks more appropriate for this prompt. And by then they trained this reward function uh, neural network that was taking these two sentences and were trying to reproduce the preference of the user. So what about code? Can you do the same thing for code? Uh, there is a, a GitHub codex. Uh, which is a, a version of GPT design, a train on code. Yeah. And the difference is that uh, it does not only generate code, but there is a, a layer on top of that uh, that uh, double checks. Uh, so we can generate a couple of different alternatives for the code and then ranks them. And then uh, there is uh, some uh, hand-designed code that checks syntax uh, to make sure that the code generated is actually safe and correct uh, and will run, uh, at least syntactically. Um, so if you use a chat GPT to generate code, that's very bad because uh, it, it does not have this check. So it can generate the wrong code. But if you use uh, uh, OpenAI or Microsoft Codex, uh, uh, was, no, sorry, it was a GitHub Copilot uh, yeah. and uh, OpenAI Codex. So it's like the technology and then the actual product. And if you use that, you get integrated into a Python you know, editor and it just generates code that is, again, more syntactically correct. And that is trained only on code, while ChatGPT is trained on any language. So that is not designed for writing code. So there are better tools to, to do it. In. So the, one of the problems... Uh how do you so you know when you take it this is I mean, this is a problem that we have as human beings is like when we do about when you do a certain sequence of actions mm -hmm. and we get a reward figuring out which of those actions actually contributed mm -hmm. to getting the reward is a is a problem yeah how how do you try to address that in well there engineers? is a so uh, this is called a credit assignment problem and uh, it's a big problem in reinforcement learning but there is a uh, the idea is uh, uh, basically to use statistical regularities in the data an example imagine you have a game of pong so you can move your paddle up and down basically so these are the two let's assume that these are the only two movements you can do in practice you can just not do any action or a couple other things but let's say that you only move up or down so an episode consists, uh, you know, you get a, tra um, a trajectory of movement up, up, down, down, up, uh, down, up, down, you know, whatever, like just a sequence of this kind of action until you get to the end of the episode when uh, either you score a goal and you get a plus one reward or the opponent scores a goal to you and then you get a minus one reward. So what you can get, if you repeat this many, many times, you get a lot of sequences, basic kind of strings, uh, up, down, up, down, you know, down, up, down, up, blah, blah. And, and then at some point you get which one is one, which one is minus one. What you can do, for example, you know, this is actually conditioned on the pixel, so you actually see the screen. And you can see that uh, uh, if you do it many times, maybe you see that there are some similarities. Like uh, uh, if you have uh, uh, the ball moving toward, uh, very close to you and moving up, every time in these long trajectories in which you moved up, you actually, in the end, got a plus one reward. And every time that was the case, so the ball was moving up towards you and you moved down, it, the episode terminated with minus one. So you can associate that, that uh, in that state, uh, selecting the action up uh, 
you know, on average, resulted in a positive reward, uh, while selecting the action down was a negative reward. So you know that that action, that state, uh, was the action that was co contributed. But if you do this average over many episodes, you will see that many actions up and down uh, don't have any value. Because, you know, if the ball is far away from the paddle and you move up or down, it doesn't matter, you know, as long as they haven't gone too far. And if you average this over many trajectories, you will see that those have no value. Because, you know, if the ball is far away, you press up, 50% of the time, you get plus one, 50% you get minus one in the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. When you press down, you also get 50-50. And then you see that, that that action did not really contribute, right? Okay, so you depend on the statistical regularity. Yep. So you just have to collect a lot of data and see, on average, uh, when I select an action similar to this action in a state similar to this state, uh, did I get more positive reward or more negative reward, for example? And if you collect many examples, and you can generalize, make a good representation that, uh, you know, it does not have to be exactly the same state, but something similar, you can detect some regularities. But if the ball is very far from the paddle, then it doesn't matter, you know, sometimes you get plus rewards, they get minus reward, uh, but it will be independent from the action you get. So the, the, the proportion of positive and negative reward you get uh, is the same whether you moved up or down. And that means that that action, you know, in the state, uh, the action they choose is irre irrelevant. But in some cases, you will see that uh, in those crucial points in which you're about to score, get uh, to get the goal scored against you, if you press up or down, you actually change the outcome. And then you see that in that state, uh, by pressing, you know, up or down in the direction of the ball, results in many more positive rewards than negative. Versus if you do the opposite action, you get many more negative rewards than positive. And then you know which action to do and which one to avoid. Yeah. So go over given enough examples you can build a distribution yep. of what to do yep. and sort of extract so it. it is that you can get this credit assignment by just looking at what happens so if you select imagine you get like um, another example that we do in uh, for analyzing this model theoretically it's called the multi-armed bandit and that's uh, a terminology from las vegas there's like there's a lot of machines and they are the bandits because they they st they steal from you you know all your money <laughs> and they are multi-armed because uh, you have many slot machines <coughs> and different machines can have different payouts now it is never deterministic so so, for example, the reward can be a, a normally distributed. So they have a, an average reward, and then there will be a standard deviation. And you don't know what is the average reward and the standard deviation. Now, actually, a lot of machines are more complex, but this is a simple model. Now, if you want to make money, you would definitely want to get the, the one with the highest expected payout. Like, you, know, you can just compare them. But you don't know which one it is, so you have to make experiment. So you play in the first one, and you observe a certain number, like five reward. Right again, you get 15. Another one, minus five, you know. And then the more you, that you collect, uh, the more you can build a distribution that matches that and you can actually infer the parameter. But you don't want to waste too much money on that just to explore. Because if you see that you never get more than 10, another machine always get more than 50, you just continue on the other one, right? So you have to be able to make this, uh, this, uh, this inference. Um, so in that case, uh, um, the regularity is... Uh, so there's a, you need to balance like the cost of experimenting to learn the learn the distribution and the actual benefit of learning the distribution, right? Yeah. Uh, in that case, yes. So in the real world, it can be a bit more complicated, but in this case, it's a, a, that's all they have to do. So if you uh, do a sequence of slot machine, like one, two, three, four, five, six, and you just try all of them once, uh, then you see some reward. If you get a high reward on one, it is not necessarily the best machine because maybe it is just on the tail of a Gaussian distribution, right? So you need to do more um, more interaction to be more certain. So you know it takes more time. But uh, after you observe them, uh, if you keep playing, you know, if you keep playing them at random, you will see that some machine on average will give you more reward than the other. Just take like the arithmetic average, for example, and you see that some machines are more consistent and on average they give you better reward than the others, right? And that's the same as uh, detecting the regularity of going up or down with the reward, because playing that machine correlates with, an a, higher, with a higher reward than the others. In the case, there's only one action and an immediate reward, so it's a bit easier to do the connection. But just play a sequence of a slot machine, you see that in the sequence, in those sequences in which the best playing machine is played, you probably get a higher reward. In those sequences in which you don't play that machine, you get lower reward. And after after a while, you learn now that the only thing in common with those sequences of which machine you played is that one machine that was the best playing. And then you learn that that is the one that you play. So it is not very intuitive, but the reinforcement learning algorithm basically managed to extract this information. Mm. So it all depends on how many times you can play that thing, right? 
It also, yes. So that's called the exploration, uh, exploitation dilemma. So you have a behavior like you actually paying actual real money, you know, and you have to find which machine is better. Ideally, you would like to play all of them infinite times so that you get the, be the best representation of the distribution. We can't, mean, we can't do like human beings can't do that. No, no, no. But also, you would pay like infinite money, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so you, you cannot. So the idea is that you would like to make as few attempts as possible um, so that you don't waste money on machines that have lower payout. And then you want to play most of your money on the machine with the highest payout. But again, you don't know which one and it cannot be certain ever because uh, it could always be on a tail on a distribution but the more you play the more you get certain so there are algorithms in which you can actually prove mathematically what is the optimal so what is the optimal strategy and is that it also depends on the variance of the machine so you can try different machines and basically rescale them um, when you do an estimate of the average usually do Monte Carlo so when you use the arithmetic average to approximate the mean and the the quality of the estimate like the variance of your estimate of the mean um, improves as one over the square root of the number of samples so if you have uh, if you want to Put your error uh, to make your error one times uh, ten, ten times smaller around the mean. You need to collect hundred times more data. But this uh, puts yeah. one, and then you can see that uh, if the payout is small and you have uh, uh, you know enough samples, stop because you don't need to test it anymore because you know it, it will not change too much. But if the uh, payout is a high variance, you might need to test it more. So there are basically some rules in which you can actually quantify create a reward function that uh, assigns both the reward you observe from the machine, and then you also rescale it by one over square root of the number of times you played that machine already. In this case, if you underplay a machine, you're only playing one, the best machine, the reward this machine gives you kind of keeps going down. At some point, you are forced to try another machine because this actual payout, this kind of fake payout you get uh, is going to be higher. But if you keep playing the new machine and the reward is actually still small, then uh, the best machine becomes the best again. So you keep playing all of them but you focus much, spend much more time on the bad one. But this guarantees that asymptotically you get the best performer. So you pay the less money and you get the maximum payout. Mm. <laughs> so how much of like... How much of things that you learn from inspiration we get from so how humans or animals learn? Well, let's say in reinforcement learning, it's kind of an example of convergent of uh, convergence in science uh, because uh, there definitely was a, a clear biological inspiration. But uh, in the, when uh, reinforcement learning was first created in computer science, uh, um, there was no uh, not yet uh, a theory of reinforcement learning in animals. What's so, the simplest reinforcement learning model you could build? Um, like this, the, if you were just if you just like write some code in Python, build something? I think uh, now that we have a, you know, a very well developed and very powerful uh, PyTorch, uh, I think uh, uh, well, of decent performing algorithms, not simple, because there are uh, maximum entropy, uh, no, sorry, um, uh, if you want to say like a cross entropy reinforcement learning, there's some simple methods that uh, are easy to implement, uh, but the, the actual deep reinforcement learning one, the easiest to implement policy, policy gradient. Because that uh, is kind of... Um, you want to maximize uh, the rewards you collect from the environment. Uh, this is non a non-differentiable function, but you can actually uh, use a trick and you can actually write uh, uh, as a function of the, of the behavior of the agent. And then you can actually calculate the gradient, basically of the expected reward you get uh, with respect to the parameters in your network. And then you can do gradient ascent to, uh, to change the, the parameter network in order to maximize the rewards. Now, there are a few subtleties behind it, but um, that's probably the, the, uh, the most effective to implement. There are also much better variants than that. That's still unstable, has a like, high variance. They, you need to do more tricks to make it uh, worthwhile. But there are some really good libraries existing. My favorite is Stable Baselines 3, and that is implemented in PyTorch. And it's very well written, very uh, pretty simple to use, uh, um, and very powerful. There are more powerful libraries, but they, you pay the, um, the cap their capabilities uh, with a much increased complexity. And the field is already complex enough. We don't need that much more other complexity. So I think SB3 is a really good library. So what are some interesting things that you've seen or like thinking about lately in terms of... Yeah, so uh, thinking a lot about uh, um, in this kind of end-to-end -end learning, how to um, incorporate uh, uh, mul uh, multiple tasks in an easier way. So the idea is that... Uh, we can do reinforcement learning with multiple tasks, like in the same way we do supervised learning with multiple tasks. In supervised learning, you collect the data set with uh, all the data from the different tasks together, and they just sample mini batches from all the tasks uh, you know, together. And that takes longer to train. 
In reverse learning, it's the same. You can just uh, take a lot of parallel environments, and each environment can be a different task. And then you just have the, your agent interact in parallel in all the possible uh, environment, all possible tasks you need to solve, and then pull together the experiences and learn a single model that learn that can perform all the tasks. But it's very difficult. One, because reverse learning takes a long time to train. So this is kind of scales almost linearly with number of tasks, and like it's much more time consuming. Second is some tasks may be easy, some tasks may, may be difficult. And usually you need a lot of hyper optimization or even like a, a engineering of the reward function because maybe your agent cheated on the reward function and then you need to change the reward function. Now imagine that you have a lot of tasks and some of the tasks, the agent learns to do them. The others, it fails. Then you need to change either the reward function, some parameter or something. But then you have to train the whole system again with all the tasks, even the one you already learned. That's kind of stupid. <laughs> so, but that's uh, the traditional multitask uh, approach. So there is a better way, and a better way uh, is, uh, it is like not uh, entirely novel, but uh, I'm uh, working on it uh, now as well, uh, but I'm not the first, the first one to do. And that's uh, called um, multitask policy distillation. So policy distillation is similar to knowledge distillation in supervised learning, but with some subtle differences. So when you do knowledge distillation in your networks, you, are <laughs> um, you uh, usually want to take a train your network and uh, create a smaller neural network, so for example, to use in an embedded, uh, you know, in a robot or in an embedded uh, chip, um, but that does the same behavior. So given the same input, you want the same output. So you basically give the same inputs to the bot network, and you train, uh, you use a, 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 a KL divergence loss so that the output uh, of the two network is the same, or um, minimum, uh, mean square error, depending on what type of uh, output the network is outputting. So you basically train the network that given the same input, you want them to have the same output. In reinforcement learning, this is used differently. So this is used differently because um, we don't really care about using smaller uh, models. In reinforcement learning, usually neural networks are pretty small. They are becoming bigger because there are much, many more benefits of using larger networks. But usually in reinforcement learning, we use small networks because they are faster to run, and again, the training is low. However, what happens in, in, uh, uh, in the field, uh, when, even when big companies that can afford it, even when they do the reinforcement learning, it turns out that during training, you train your model like AlphaGo, and you get good performance, but they want to get better performance. So you make some hypotheses, you change the CD representation, you change the network architecture, habit parameter, reward function, whatever, and then you have to train from scratch. But that's really stupid because you're th you, maybe you spent uh, like uh, $20,000 to train that, that big model once, huh? then you throw it away and you train again from scratch with that parameter. Even if you have so much money you know, as DeepMind OpenAI, it's still a really stupid uh, usage, and you also waste a lot of time. So what they found out very early on, like well, at least uh, in the past uh, uh, quite a few years, uh, is that uh, uh, that's stupid indeed. So what they do is, imagine you want to try, try different network architecture. Okay, you take the previous trained model that was working, no, not the best performer that was working. Then you do policy distillation, which is basically you train a new neural network with, uh, with inputs from uh, the environment, so when an agent is interacting with the environment using the trained policy. And then uh, you, you train this net, the new network to output the same output as a previous network when the same input is Okay, so smaller, it's like, a, it's like an autoencoder. Uh, no, no, no. It is like uh, you just take two neural networks with different architecture. Okay. One is already trained and you spend $20,000 to train. The other one is uh, blank, you know, initialized it random. But before you start using the new network, uh, you, first, uh, uh, train, uh, um, you first train the new network, uh, uh, you give the same input to both networks, uh, and you observe the outputs. Then you create a loss function that penalizes differences between the outputs ah, and the network. And then you train a new network to basically mimic, you know, the, mimic the, the old one. Yeah. But now you have a network that encodes all that is learned already, but you get a bigger network or, or with different high parameter. And then you continue training you know, with the new network. But now the network is different. And you could not have done, uh, done this change before because if you need to change the network architecture, you know, you're adding parameter, but they are initialized to random. So in this case, you actually encode what has been learned in another network. Uh -huh. And actually, contrary to knowledge distillation, we usually do the opposite. Instead of going for a bigger network to a smaller one, we go from a smaller to a bigger one because this way we can train faster on a smaller network and extract something from the environment and then continue training on a bigger network, which is more time consuming. But we hopefully need to train for fewer time steps huh? because the network has already learned a lot of baseline. So this is one way. Another way is to do uh, multitask policy distillation. So if uh, you do multitask learning, with, but instead of taking one network and cloning it into another network, you take many networks, one for each different task, and then you do the policy distillation by collecting data from all of those, you know, um, giving different inputs. Huh? You see, um, so you basically do yeah, policy distillation at the same time with all these other networks, but they all go to the same unique network. And it is that then uh, you have a network that can do all, all those tasks. 
you know, if uh, the distillation is successful. But because you have an individual task for each uh, behavior, if you need to change behavior because you don't like it anymore, you can just retrain the policy decision step, which is much faster than training from scratch the whole agent. Or if uh, you train the different task and one task is not learning, you can engineer the reward or change the parameter only for that task. And once you're happy that the performance is good, then you have that train your network for that task. And then again, you put them all together in one single network using policy distillation. And that can basically allow you to swap in and out this behavior, and it can be much more useful for practical so you train in, in commercial applications also. You train smaller tasks, and then you put them together yeah. into one big network. Exactly, yeah. Because this way, you have more control on how each task is learned, uh, and you can make sure that each task uh, is solved uh, as, as you want it. But you can do more advanced things uh, that. So you can use this behavior um, not as multiple, ta multiple tasks, but as uh, uh, skills, so uh, kind of a skill prior. So this is what OpenAI did. They train uh, an environment in which uh, uh, three humanoids with like I think 72 or 80 degrees of freedom, so like a very uh, many type of very very complex movement, and they wanted them to play football against each other. So they first had to learn to control the body, which again with the 70, 80 degrees of freedom is a very challenging task. It uh, can be done with reinforcement learning, but it's still uh, you know not super easy. And then uh, they need to learn the rules of football, and then they learn to you know, strategy how to evade an opponent, you know how to score a goal, how to um, trick the opponent, or uh, the more advanced. Uh, uh, skill. So this, if you were to train a reinforcement learning agent on this task from scratch, you just put these agents at random and the reward is, uh, you know, plus one, minus one, every time the goal is scored, you see them doing nothing. Actually, there is a video of them training and you can see that when they start learning, they have no nothing. So they just fall to the floor and move at random like they have like <laughs> an epileptic seizure. If they were doing those movements at random, they will never score even one time the goal. So it will take forever to learn. So OpenAI was very smart. They put together a lot of components, which I think are really good. And uh, it's kind of an indication that now it's still um, complicated from the engineering, like software engineering side, but it will become easier. And once this tool becomes uh, easier and more uh, well accessible, then I think that this is kind of the a paradigm for, that will be the base of actual commercial application that use reinforcement learning, for example, for, especially for robotics. So it was as follows. First, they start uh, with uh, um, creating a, a low-level motor controller that can control the robot, uh, you know, this many movement that the robot can do, um, uh, to do all the action you can care, like uh, running, walking, you know, kicking the ball, and these kind of things. And this is trained using motion capture data from actual football players. And they're used to basically uh, create a model of what type of movement uh, are probably good for solving this type of task. Now, there are a lot of other tricks in the, in the process, but uh, this is the, the main one. So after training this model, we get an autoencoder that takes a, a latent vector as input and outputs sequences of motor action. This latent vector is much better than motor control, because if you take a motor action at random, like a, a, a joint position at random for every joint in the body, most of those combination will not be combination of movement that the person would ever do, because it just be random movement of all the joints in your body. But if you take a vector at random in this latent space uh, that is inputted to this uh, low-level controller, then you actually output uh, a realistic configuration of the body. So if you output actions at so random... You just make the search space smaller. Yeah, but also every random vector in this latent space uh, is always a correct configuration of the body, while, uh, while most of the random vectors in motor space... Uh, are not not realistic. Not legal. Moment. They're like illegal. So yeah, if, but if it was only learned by exploring at random, if it explores at random in the motor space, it will take forever to find uh, which motor combination are correct. There it, are more. Yeah. There are many more illegal states than exactly. there are. In this states. case, uh, it is guaranteed that uh, you know it will do something at random. It will just walk in a random direction, but it will be walking, not just falling to the ground and having an epileptic seizure. Right, right, right. So that's a big advantage. It speeds up the learning a lot. The second trick they found is uh, to train these skill modules. And the skills module are the simple neural network. Each of them learns to do a simple hard-coded task. One is uh, just kicking the ball. Another is kicking a ball towards a specific direction. Another one is uh, running you know, or following a path. So there is a path like a key point, and the agent is given a reward every time it moves toward that point. Then the point moves, and the agent has to follow. And other ones are about uh, um, uh, crossing opponents. There are a couple of skills. So they have like three or four of these skills. And these are easy to learn because it's a single task. A single task. And the agent has already learned to do this kind of complex locomotion. So if you're exploring this high-level uh, motor space uh, instead of the low-level motor space, uh, it's much faster to find correct uh, 
configuration movement. So you teach the little individual skills and then you yeah, put then them all together and create Then you the com uh, combine them, but then, uh, you know, if you combine them in a multitask setting, uh, that's not what you want to do because then you have an agent that can do those four movements and all four actions, but it's still not playing football, right? There are no rules of football. So what you do instead uh, is uh, you train, now you train from scratch, uh, you know, the agents to play football using this low-level controller so you don't have to output this motor command directly, it, so it is already much faster. But... Uh, uh, you also have a special loss function that uh, basically is a, a mix of policy distillation and actual reinforcement learning. So the agent is learning by reinforcement learning using plus minus one reward when the ball is uh, enters a goal. But until you get those rewards, uh, there is an auxiliary loss and the loss is the distillation loss. So if uh, the agent does not have any reward signal because it did not collect reward, uh, it will learn to reproduce the four learned skill that is learned. So it basically, when in doubt, it tries to mimic one of those four behavior. Mm. And that makes it more likely that you select the right action, you know, kicking the ball at some point getting a goal, then you get a reward, and that reward will change the behavior. And then if the robot is confident, or the agent is confident about the behavior, then it will start ignoring the skills, that, you know, these, these four uh, behavior, and it will focus on the one actually get the reward. But, and this is a, a tune automatically. So the model automatically balances how much weight to give to each of the skill. Uh, so you can select uh, which skill is more useful to, to use, you know, to learn uh, in that part of training. And then the agents learn really, really well and really good strategies. It still takes uh, an insane amount of compute power to do all this process together. Um, it could be done probably in a bit simpler way, a, a bit less performant, but, uh, uh, but also a simpler and a bit cheaper. But it's still... Uh, uh, barely within the reach of academia. So I think that uh, computationally, we may be able to do it, uh, but it will still be at the limit of you know, the cost or you know, resources that are available. But the infrastructure is really difficult to make, so it will take time to, to actually get to that point. There's a lot of uh, concern about the access from academics, access for academics to do these kind of next level mm -hmm. yeah. AI things, just, just from a compute perspective yeah so um, uh, sorry one second so is it going to be the case that like in the future it's just going to be Microsoft and Google doing all the research for AI stuff uh, sorry sorry again yeah sorry you got distracted no no yeah. no it's like just the cost of doing AI research yeah uh, yeah but that is going down so there is a, a, a survey I don't remember the name uh, I think um it's heavy with AI for robotics, but there is a story that is uh, being done for a few years, uh, and it is released every year, and they keep track uh, of progress in robotics in the field. And one of the things they track is the cost of the robot platforms, and you can see that they are going down exponentially. So, oh, I see. And that, uh, I think, comes hand-in-hand uh, hand with more people accessing the field. The more people are in the field, then they, you know, the bigger the market, so the cheaper this robot can become. And also, there's more incentive to make it cheaper. If it is only companies like OpenAI and DeepMind who have you know, deep pockets, uh, then they can afford to pay, spend a lot of money on this robot. Uh, but the other you know, labs, most of the other labs and companies cannot. So that ke keeps uh, the people uh, out. And because both of these companies are very close in their software, you know, even if they develop this software infrastructure, th that is not accessible to other people. And when you have to create it from scratch, uh, it takes a lot of software engineering and they have big teams of software engineers you know, doing the actual coding. Uh, uh, so that's why I think uh, you know, being more open source, both in the robot platforms and in the software is going to be very really useful. Now, every people we are making, we are open sourcing the code uh, and uh, if the code is useful, for example, I usually also write uh, a Python library um, that actually makes it even simpler to use the code because, you know, most scientific code for paper is really designed only to reproduce a paper and it's really uh, messy to work with because you have to really modify a lot of the code. But if you can package it as a, as a, as a Python library, then people can just install it and then uh, just use it, you know, in a high level, you know, using some example that you can provide. So these are all things that definitely help, but they take time to develop. I uh, just want to stress that yeah, OpenAI, despite the name, is one of the most closed-source companies in the world. Uh, they really change a lot from the original mission. So what about so um, uh, what about uh, Tesla's Tesla bot? <laughs> no, not not going to happen. <laughs> let's not talk about it. Well, no, let's talk about it. Come on. What's, what, what do you think? What's uh, as a robotic it? platform is ridiculous. It uh, is much la much less than the, the state of the art of human robotics. Uh. And uh, it's only a marketing ploy, you know, to attract people to uh, get to go to work for Tesla in AI. They, they will never be a Tesla bot, you know, it will never really work. Uh, it will only be a prototype uh, just, yeah, for... What's wrong with the idea? 
No, the idea is good, but uh, you know, Rodix is really expensive. Uh, Elon Musk in the presentation quoted the price of 20,000 euro, but there's a big asterisk. That price is quoted for, I think, uh, a production run of a million of them. <laughs> and of course, uh, everything can become like cheap, you know, if you build a million <laughs> of them. So yeah, the actual robot is probably in the hundreds of thousands of dollars right now. But like, can it work? Though? Huh? That's the question. Hmm? Can it work? Like... I mean, we, there are, like, like, I mean, there are like, lots of human robots in the world. You know, Atlas robot oh, is no, much more right. advanced, for example. Right, right. So, like, yeah. I'm honestly no idea. Like, what what are they claiming that this is gonna do better than the other things that are out there? Because uh, Elon Musk has a very big ego. <laughs> but again, I don't, I don't think they actually believe that. Uh, I feel that uh, they keep it as a as an open possibility because of course uh, if they can do it or they feel developed f- well enough uh, it is definitely a big uh, you know a big market to tackle uh, but their team working on that is actually also very small and uh, uh, I don't yeah I actually don't think they are actually serious about it uh, uh, it is really only a marketing stunt to to get people excited uh, to get people to talk about Tesla and Tesla AI and to get people who maybe don't care much about self car but want to do AI they think oh it's cool robot and uh, cool AI for robotics uh, and they can get uh, hire them and then you know do good science you know good engineering and science uh, for for them for their team um but yeah i i, I, I guess that they probably have to solve the self-driving first right no yeah not necessarily but yeah but also is, is, the, is, is it, it a, is that a harder problem do you think than the robot or uh, no yeah but only because it depends on what you want the robot to do so I think that there are other companies, like there's one, I think it's called uh, um, Everyday Robots, if I remember correctly. It's a spin-off by Google X. So, um, and they actually are, were doing a lot of reinforcement learning for robotics. So it was excited. But then it turns out that they actually kind of uh, doing a lot of mix with this traditional type of robotics that they're not uh, very fond of. Now, there is a problem with that. Um, most companies in robotics like this, that do not, this is human robots. Uh, I think they are aiming too high. So we will get there, absolutely, 100%, and even not in not that long time. But you want a robot that is run by a domestic helper. You know, the number of tasks you want the robot to do in the house are many and very complex for a robot. Like, for me, even just you know, cleaning or making coffee or something, these are really, really difficult to train this, uh, this robot to do them because every house is different, so the robot has to be adaptable. The robot has to be able to learn uh, if you want the task to be different uh, or the coffee machine is going to be different different people. So a lot of really, uh, a lot of complexity that uh, you can do with end-to-end learning, that you can fine-tune it with this kind of handcrafted uh, behaviors. And uh, and it's a nightmare. And it will never work, you know, with this kind of techniques, uh, it will never work at the level of performance to actually work in daily life. That's even setting aside the cost of the robots and everything. So I think that uh, that is the main problem. So uh, it's not about the, you know, it's good to aim high, but I think that if you start, uh, um, you know, if you uh, want to build a plane, like, you know, with the right brother, imagine if instead of being, building that simple plane, uh, they started to, uh, they tried to build the F-35, you know, from scratch, uh, without even building the first, uh, the first plane, uh, you know, it will go nowhere. So it's good to aim high, but I think you have to be a bit more incremental. And of course, there is the appeal, because if you have a domestic helper robot, that's a massive market, you know, and that's uh, what uh, many robotic companies are aiming for. And, but I think that, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it, they will not be successful. And the robotics companies are a massive drain of money. It costs a lot of money, and and you don't get returns for like 10, 20 years. So, you know, you, you really have to have very deep pockets to support that. I mean, it's only like the Roomba is like the only thing that's really... Yeah, like yeah, true. But that's because uh, the task it do is so simple. Is, is simple. Exactly so. Um, so what I'm thinking is um, that is not the right approach. So what I'm interested in, I'm interested in AGI and artificial life and actually synthetic life also for Fermi Paradox and a lot of uh, interesting topics. But in general, um, I think that uh, a very good setting, both for research, especially in artificial life that I'm interested in, but uh, uh, but in general for reinforcement learning for robotics, uh, and also uh, as commercial application that is much more realistic, uh, is that of robot pets. Now, for robot pets, you should not imagine like, you know, a, a dog, just a robot. It should be like a new animal. Uh, but, there are, um, but there are a couple of uh, good things about that. The first one is that a pet or an animal, they can do a lot of different behaviors, but the behavior they do are usually are much simpler than the type of behavior we would like in a domestic helper robot. Because a pet does not need to basically be able to do anything, right? It has to be entertaining, it has to make an emotional connection with you, it can be playful, maybe play fetch, because there are some things that are a bit more complicated. Huh? But you don't expect a pet to be able to do a complex task like make you coffee. So, that, you know, a, a robot pet does not need to be able to do tasks, okay, that they would be finger, but it has to look very realistic, or you know, it has to be alive, okay, that's the main thing. But that is uh, kind of independent from the type of the behavior. So I think that this puts the bar much lower and much more attainable. Now, what I mean by uh, being alive or looking alive, depending on, on your interpretation, in my case, I think uh, 
in that sense, it could even be alive, or when you get to a sufficient complexity, but you know, it can be debated. Um, the idea is that uh, if, uh, you, if you, there is a kid that has never seen a giraffe and sees a giraffe for the first time, huh, it will look weird. But they will not see like you know a fucking alien. They see it's a it's a giraffe. <laughs> they can smell it's an animal. They can look at moving around. They can see grazing. So they can put some. Uh, they can relate uh, the new animal with existing animals, and uh, they see it moving in a certain way. For example, there is such thing as biological motion. So if you take some markers and you put them on an animal or a person, and you only show the the video of how these markers move on the screen without showing the the animal, uh, and you compare them to randomly moving dots. Uh, uh, all uh, even like infant uh, chicks uh, or animals or in the humans uh, have a strong preference for the point for the dots that move uh, in uh, in uh, you know mimicking the movement of an animal. That's called uh, biological motion. So there are things uh, like including biological motion and coherency of behavior, like not the room that keeps bumping in the wall because it doesn't protect the wall, but more as in um, as in. Uh, um, uh, being consistent. So if you call <clears throat> if you call a robot dog like a robot pet, say come here, come here, and you know if it just keeps staring away, does not even move, you can tell it did not detect you, and you can tell that the robot is broken, right? Or something went wrong in the in the in the program. So that you will see that that's like a, a machine, not like a, a life. Um, but if you call it and it talks to you, like you know a dog that you know, can move the head and look at you like kind of a bit puzzle, and that does not come to you you will not think that the robot is broken. You will think that either it does not want to come to you or it did not understand the command because it's a puppy, you know, and does not uh, understand the, what you mean by come here, you know. Uh, there could be a lot of reason, but you will not be shocked. You know, most of the time you call a dog, it will not necessarily come to you unless, you know, it's your own dog. Um, and you don't think that the dog is broken. So I think that there are simple things like that, that in this case, uh, if you do this behavior, and I think that the key to make it like this coherent is being end-to-end. -end. Uh, but if you get a robot that does that type of behavior, then uh, it does not need to do the task correctly. It can make mistakes, huh? but as long as the person is not aware that the mistake is due to the to the controller not recognizing the command, and the user think that just the robot does not want to do it or do not understand it, but it is still alive and looking at you and moving, huh? then uh, I think it's fine. You know, most of uh, most animals we have uh, don't do what we want to do or what we expect them to do the vast majority of the time, and we don't think they are broken. You know, uh, it can be <laughs> a bit more dumber, or they can just not want it, uh, or they do not understand the command. It can be a lot of reason, but they are not broken. So that's why you said that uh, you don't. Um, it's much easier than a robot a domestic helper because it does not need to work. <laughs> it has to be alive. <laughs> it just has to be alive. Uh, it has to be alive uh, and do possibly make an emotional connection with you, you know, recognize you, bond, possibly learn some tricks uh, that would be useful, and uh, have some memory and have a different personality. So different pets have different personalities and be maybe sometimes funny or entertaining. So there are some things that you might want in a pet, um, but uh, it does not need to be able to do well, stuff. <laughs> that's the key. Can that be achieved by just just standard classical robotic stuff? No, I don't think so. Because in that case, uh, you know, imagine if it is kind of module-based uh, controller or, or a finite state machine. If one of the rules uh, that control the state uh, or they control uh, one of the you know perceptual modules, like detecting face, uh, breaks. Uh, then you get the robot that stares in, you know, in, in blank and does not respond to you because it is not detecting you. And it only takes one time to see that effect uh, to break, uh, you can call it as a delusion or to actually you know, not be alive. You know, again, it can be debated in philosophy. But uh, um, either way, you will not see it as an, as an animal anymore because uh, you know, once you see it breaking, you see, yeah, it's very convincing, but it, it, I can see you know, it's just like an if-then rule. But if it is consistent, as I'm, as I'm say, telling you, uh, like from using end-to-end -end, uh, learning, uh, there is no single point of failure. And then the robot will never be staring blankly or be visibly broken as if an if-then rule uh, you know, was not met. And that's the most important. So uh, the user should never see that, uh, that happening. If they see that happening, then uh, yeah, they, uh, you know they, they don't. It will not consider. I mean, there have been anymore. some. There have been quite a few attempts at the pet, right? Yeah, but they only use the, this existing uh, technology, no, not this uh, new recent one. And I think this is actually the key. Nice. Well, but we we'll get there anyway. Yeah. So uh, do you have? Uh, I think you have. I think you have a meeting to go to. Yeah, like I have uh, like five ten minutes, but. Anyway, but like this has been great. Like just yeah. because uh, I spoke to I was speaking to Marian about how learning happens in the human brain. And uh, it's nice to like to, to think about how it could be implemented in a machine, um, but man, it's such a like 
it's a it's a qualitatively qualitatively different sort of approach than to, to other traditional machine learning sort of things. Yeah, but if you want to learn a behavior, um, there are no other way. I mean, there are some alternatives like self-supervised learning, imitation learning, uh, inverse reinforcement learning, all these kind of things. Uh, but in the end, uh, they are all uh, very connected to reinforcement learning because that is the way to learn behavior. Like even mathematically, uh, there are also parallel with control theory. When you do mathematical control theory, they use different notation. But there are a lot of uh, um, um, a lot of people have noted that the equations have the same form. So even if you do the traditional control or fossil learning, uh, you call the variables in different way, the, the function is slightly different, uh, but it's really doing something very similar. So there are probably not many ways to learn a behavior than, uh, other than that. Uh, that's regardless of the parallel with biology. And that's actually how we got uh, into reinforcement learning at the beginning. So I was interested in AGI, and uh, I was excited. I, I come from a background also with computational neuroscience as a PhD. And I studied the brain, uh, and then uh, I saw the progress with the deep learning. I said, okay, that's actually very useful. That's what I need. Um, but with traditional supervised learning, uh, you don't get to AGI with supervised learning. <laughs> you think it's going to be pretty so impossible. So ChatGPT won't take us to AGI? Uh, I think there are many approaches to AGI. I think that many can do. I think that uh, in a sense, uh, GPT, I don't like chat GPT, I prefer GPT, the actual model, because uh, I don't think you should be able to chat with the model. <laughs> I think that's kind of stupid. Uh, but some people like to not talk with the computer. But you know, if, you use, if you use it better, you know, you can just use the prompt in a smarter way. But anyway, um, so GPT, in a sense, it is a general intelligence because it can uh, do multiple tasks uh, quite well. You, know, different pro you select different prompt. It's not learning one task, but it can do many tasks. And that's kind of like a general learner. So that's a general learning system. Uh, so in a sense, it is a little AGI, but my definition of AGI is much more liberal than other people. For me, an AGI is something... So there should, uh, I follow uh, a nice paper by uh, Ben Goertzel about this, about how to define intelligence. And one way to define it, I think there are two directions. One is uh, how good you are at solving a certain task. The other one is uh, what is the set of tasks that you can uh, uh, do. And if you're able to learn a wide range of tasks, then you're a general intelligence, and you're more intelligent if uh, you, know, you can do those tasks to a better performance, like you know, a superhuman performance better than human. So in a sense, uh, if you have uh, like a narrow intelligence, it's going to be an intelligent with uh, can be arbitrarily smart, but on a single task or very few tasks. And the general intelligence is just an intelligence is more or less intelligent, so capable of solving different tasks on a wider range of tasks. And uh, GPT is able you know, to solve and to learn to solve uh, uh, a pretty, pretty wide range of tasks. So in a sense, uh, it is an AGI. It is not human-level intelligence. It is not human-like intelligence. But in a sense, it is a simple AGI. Uh, but again, we, when we talk about AGI, we usually mean uh, more you know, complex and more capable systems. So that's the only difference. So I think that a much more capable version of GPT could definitely be an AGI. Not the AGI that uh, I'm interested in. Um, I think it'd be limited for a lot of reasons. Would, but, it, would, uh, it, would it, it have to have a body? Uh, would it have to have a body to be like for, for an AGI to sort of um, do a thing? I don't think embodied, so. Just embodied. Yeah, I, right? I don't think so. But I think there are also different type of uh, of AGIs. Because again, if you think of my definition of AGI of just having this like wider range of tasks uh, that you can do at superhuman level, for example, then uh, you definitely don't need a body because again, you can just do have all the tasks on the computer. Yeah, hi, we almost finished. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. We're done. Bro. Okay. Yeah. It's fine. Uh, we'll uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks again for. Uh, yeah. Thank for you time. for inviting me. Yeah. No worries, man. Thanks. Uh, always fun. Let's next time we'll pick a different topic and talk yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe AGI. Uh, that could be or. Uh, um, yeah. That uh, or Fermi paradox. Oh, Fermi. Let's do that. No. Let's do that one. I've been wanting to talk about that one. Let's do yeah. that for sure. All right. Yeah. Yes, I'm very passionate about that topic. Okay. Catch you next time, man. Okay. Bye. Then see you next time. This has been another episode of the One Deeper Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you learned something. Catch you again next time.